Welcome, everyone. My name is Malou Innocent, Foreign Policy Analyst at the Cato Institute. We are here today to discuss the Arab Awakening, or the Arab Spring, the massive popular uprisings currently roiling through Arab societies. The timing of this watershed moment could hardly be more appropriate, as it coincides with the recent death of al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden. Let us hope that the popular revolts and the impact they have on the broader Muslim psyche will provide a new and compelling counter-narrative to the nihilism of radical Islam. Now, it should go without saying that each country in the Arab world is unique. Stretching from Oman in the east to Morocco in the west, it includes one of the, one of the world's richest countries, Saudi Arabia, and also one of the world's poorest, Yemen. But despite their differences, many are plagued with similar problems. Sclerotic and paternalistic leadership, economic stagnation, and widespread social malaise. For decades, the conventional wisdom was that all these nations and the people within them were hopelessly apathetic and that the Arab street was a willing to be appeased with economic reforms. But in recent years, labor unrest, high unemployment, and rising food prices became too much to bear. And on December 17, 2010, when a frustrated fruit vendor in Tunisia set himself ablaze, no one could have imagined that it would trigger a chain of events that would lead to a groundswell of opposition that spread throughout North Africa and the Middle East. These revolutions are certainly a work in progress, but does self-determination have to be synonymous with liberal democracy? How have these events influenced non-Arab Muslim states like Turkey and Iran? And how do these developments impact America's influence in the region? Here to discuss these and other questions are some of the leading thinkers on both the Middle East and the philosophy of revolution and political and social reform. In the interest of time, I have condensed their biographies, but please keep in mind that their credentials are quite extensive. Our first speaker is Dr. Stephen A. Cook, Senior Fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He is an expert on Arab and Turkish politics, U.S. Middle East policy, and is the author of Ruling But Not Governing, the Military and Political Development in Egypt, Algeria, and Turkey. Dr. Cook is a frequent commentator on radio and television and is widely cited in a variety of foreign policy journals, opinion magazines, and newspapers. Our second, our second speaker is Ms. Sanab El-Sawaj, co-founder and executive director of the American Islamic Congress, a nonprofit established in the wake of the September 11th attacks to build interfaith understanding, mobilize a moderate voice in the American Muslim community, and promote civil rights in the Muslim world. Ms. Al-Sawaj was born in Basra, Iraq, participated in the failed 1991 uprising against Saddam Hussein, and fled to the United States. She's a board member of George Mason University's Center for World Politics, Religions, Diplomacy, and Conflict Resolution, has testified to the Senate, and works with congressional leaders on both sides of the aisle. Our third speaker is my colleague, Dr. Stanley Kober a research fellow in foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. His areas of expertise include the relationship between democracy and peace, with a focus on social control over the war, over the war power, and American grand strategy. He has lectured in the United States and abroad, and he previously worked on Soviet and defense issues at SRI International, the Center for Naval Analyses, and the Hudson Institute. Our final speaker is Dr. David Ottaway, senior scholar at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. He's an expert on the Middle East, Africa, and Europe, and spent most of his professional life as a foreign correspondent and investigative reporter for the Washington Post, for which he served eight years in Africa and seven years in the Middle East and North Africa. 
His first trip to Saudi Arabia came in the, the mid-1970s, and he just returned from a trip to the Saudi Kingdom last month. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming Dr. Stephen Cook. Thank you very much. Uh, it's, a, it's a tremendous pleasure to be here. Um, one of the unfortunate things about being a Middle East analyst in Washington these days is very often by the time you finish your remarks, events have overtaken what you've said. So I'm hoping that uh, things will, um, my, my remarks will be relevant uh, in 12 minutes from now, because I've been informed I had 12 minutes. Um, let me start out by talking a little bit about why what's happening in the region is actually happening, then talk about a little bit about where I see the region shaking out uh, as a result of these um, uprisings. And then finally, uh, a small bit, this wouldn't be Washington if I didn't put in uh, my two cents about U.S. policy and, and the direction of U.S. policy. But first, I, th I think it's important to understand uh, why, uh, why we are seeing uh, Arab uprisings. Of course, no one can really answer the question, why now? But why is a, is a, different, uh, is a different question. And I think over the course of the last uh, three or four months, there have been a lot of ideas and theories thrown out as to why uh, Arabs are now finally rising up to dispose of uh, dictators that have been um, abusing them for many, uh, for many decades. Uh, some of those arguments have to do with uh, economic grievances. Others have to do with police brutality. In Egypt's case, uh, uh, stolen elections in late November. Uh, other arguments uh, suggest the importance of uh, social media uh, being a new uh, impetus for uh, political change. The problem with all of these arguments is that, for the most part, perhaps with the exception of social media, although social media has been important in places like Egypt since uh, the beginning of the blogosphere, which was, what, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago when blogging became an important vehicle for social criticism and activism in the Arab world. But the problem with these, all of these arguments is that each and every one of these pathologies have been present in Arab countries uh, in one form or another for quite a long time. Uh, and that there have been protests and uprisings uh, around the Arab world for uh, some time. People seem to forget the fact that, uh, for example, in 1968, uh, there was a pretty significant challenge to Gamal Abdel Nasser's rule, uh, a student-based uprising uh, opposing uh, the, the Nasser regime. So if these are the explanations, economic grievances, police brutality, uh, electoral rigging, uh, the arrogance of power, uh, they can't possibly be the explanation for the Arab uprisings right now because they've been uh, present for quite some time. My own sense is that if you look at the region and you look at the way in which leaders in the region have sought to either elicit the loyalty or the control of their populations, uh, they have had uh, a lack of a competing, uh, compelling ideological vision, which is one way in which leaders uh, elicit the loyalty of their people. Uh, for a, a good example of a compelling ideological vision is the American dream. You can uh, grow up in uh, a modest home in the suburbs of New York, work very hard, and get to work at an august organization like the Council on Foreign Relations. You are living the, uh, you are living the American dream. Uh, Arab states have been manifestly lacking in these ideas. Uh, the second means of political control is through bribery. 
and we can see how the region is different in terms of uh, how uh, leaders have been able to mobilize resources to buy political quiescence. So in Saudi Arabia, where David Ottaway has just come back from, the Saudis have mobilized something on the order of $100 billion in order to buy the quiescence of not only their own population, but the Omani population and the Bahraini population. One of the problems that Hosni Mubarak had was unlike King Abdullah, he only had a finite amount of resources to buy actually a small constituency for his autocracy, many of whom stuck with him through the end. But nevertheless, for the rest of the Egyptian population, there was the boot of the internal security services. And that is the problem, is that when you come to rely, when you over-rely on force, the threat of force, the fear of violence, it is the riskiest and most expensive place to be. And the only thing between you as the leader and revolution is fear. And I will remind you that both in Tunis's November 7th Square and in Tahrir Square, what we heard over and over again from people who were congregating demanding change was that we are no longer afraid. And once that fear factor melted away, uh, the revolutionary bandwagon took over. And instead of having a core 25,000 to 35,000 people in Tahrir Square, you got 250,000 people in Tahrir Square. People altered their calculations of how costly it would be to go out and to demand change. And once they found that it was not as costly as previously believed, more and more people joined the instigators of Egypt's uprising. And we've seen this play out in uh, different arenas. Uh, it is, I think, early to talk about revolutions, talk about democratic transitions, to talk about uh, democratic breakthroughs in the region. Uh, this is analytically uh, not satisfying by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, it is, in fact, too early to tell what is going to happen in any of, uh, in any of these countries. We do know that uh, if, in fact, these are revolutions, revolutions often don't end the way in which those on the barricades had hoped that they would end uh, while, they were, uh, demanding, uh, while they were demanding political change. What I do see, though, broadly across the region is uh, a very, obviously, a very new Middle East. And what we can see is essentially three tiers or three different types of uh, states uh, in the region. The first are countries like Tunisia and Egypt, which are struggling to achieve their revolutionary goals. Then you have another group of states, Jordan, Morocco, the small Gulf states, accepting Bahrain. Uh, perhaps some others, who are doing their best to keep their heads down and prevent, through uh, tactical reforms, through the use of uh, whatever resources that they have at their disposal, to buy political quiescence, um, to stave off what is now become a regional revolutionary bandwagon. And then the third group of states, which, uh, broadly speaking, are a repressive group of states, Libya, Syria, Yemen, Bahrain. It's odd to say Bahrain, given the fact that people thought of Bahrain as sort of a happy little place, other than the constant sectarian conflict that has gone on there for many years. And of course, Saudi Arabia. Uh, there are these, uh, these uh, states are far, um, regard changes in the region as major threats to their own interests and their own instability, and will do everything that they possibly can in order to stave off 
change from happening in their countries. To varying degrees, they have been unsuccessful and successful. Uh, clearly, the Libyans and the Syrians have not been successful. The Bahrainis uh, were unsuccessful at first, but from a kind of cold perspective, have become more successful in breaking the, uh, the demonstrations in, in Pearl Square. You have the Saudis who are determined to keep this kind of thing out of uh, their country and thus have become a, uh, a central axis, axis of counter-revolutionaries in the region. Uh, I'm sure I don't need to remind people that uh, it was King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia who called President Mubarak uh, before Mubarak uh, departed for Sharm el-Sheikh and said, if you crack down, I will make up whatever you lose in terms of American aid, and then some. Uh, clearly, the Saudis have no love lost for uh, Muammar Gaddafi, but they can't they can't possibly be totally unhappy with the fact that he is not only defying his own people, but also defying NATO. Uh, the Saudis um, uh, are willing to let bygones be bygones with the Syrians, a country in which they have not had good relations over the course of the last decade. And in fact, King Abdullah called uh, President Bashar al-Assad and offered him support once the demonstrations in Syria uh, became wider. So. Uh, you see uh, a region that is uh, actually quite different, that is scrambled, different alliances and different groups. Uh, and these alliances are, are essentially virtual. But what they do, particularly that repressive axis of countries, is that they provide encouragement to counter-revolutionary forces in places like Tunisia and like Egypt uh, and make it, uh, will make it increasingly difficult, uh, should they be successful, in, uh, uh, in uh, helping uh, Egyptians and Tunisians realize their revolutionary goals, or other places where uh, people power manages to bring down dictators. Now, finally, on this question of, of U.S. policy, I'm not going to get into whether uh, the Obama administration handled it well or whether we should thank the Bush administration for this, because these are actually quite honestly silly questions. Uh, what they do is they, the underlying assumption of these questions is that Somehow, Arabs don't have agency. Uh, they have an inability to calculate their own interests and are unable to, and are always in need of help of foreigners to determine their own futures. And that's precisely the opposite of what's happening. Arabs are now writing their own history and uh, writing it in the way that they want and feeling super empowered. And I think that there are different opportunities for the United States in the region. I think, for example, there is an opportunity for the United States to be influential in a place like Tunisia, a place where the United States has not been influential up until now. And that is our advantage. But in a place like Egypt, I think that the United States has to uh, have a softer touch, uh, have to, will have to stand back and uh, wait for Egyptians to ask the United States for, uh, for their assistance. Um, uh, many people have uh, pointed to the fact that American flags weren't burned in Tahrir Square or on the Corniche in Alexandria, uh, and are drawing the exactly wrong conclusion about uh, that lack of uh, open uh, hostility to the United States. Egyptians do mistrust the United States. They're quite well aware of the last three decades of uh, U.S.-Egypt relations. But the fact that we didn't see the U.S. flag being burned is a reflection of the fact that the Egyptians are turned inward and looking inward. Uh, we should be uh, as opposed, uh, we should be more active, though, in places like Bahrain and places like Syria. And Syria in particular, it is surprising to me that the Obama administration has not seen the strategic opportunity in doing what it can to see uh, the end of the Assad regime. 
uh, somehow, somewhere along the lines, we seem to be uh, under the belief that uh, Assad is somehow a key to regional peace or that Assad can be a reformer. I think neither of those things are grounded in much reality. But the end of the Assad regime would mean uh, a significant blow to the Iranians, which has been a uh, and isolating Iran has been a, uh, a key plank of American foreign policy in the region since at least the, 19, the 1980s. Um, Syria has been the, uh, one of the central uh, gateways for uh, Iran uh, to play in Arab politics for uh, their own malevolent ends. So I think that we have, as I said, we are, there are mixed opportunities uh, for the United States in uh, a greatly changed region. What is clear is that um, it is going to be extremely difficult for the United States to conduct its foreign policy in the region in ways that it had in the previous 30 years. Uh, you can already see that in uh, a place like Egypt, which has been a pillar of our Arab policy uh, in the effort to diverge from the Mubarak years on questions related to the Gaza Strip, Iran, and other, uh, and other issues of regional import. Uh, we should uh, go uh, have our eyes wide open in understanding that uh, we are in for a likely rough ride in the Middle East going forward. Twelve minutes, right? Perfect. Excellent. Thank you. Good afternoon, and uh, I would like to thank Kato for uh, putting this uh, very important panel um, together because um, it's not only because it's very timely, but it's very um, uh, interesting what's happening in the region and uh, what's been going on in the past few months. Um, my perspective on the topic uh, shaped by uh, two things. Growing up uh, in, um, in a region under a repressive regime, and a dictatorship, and second, now um, as an Arab American heading an organization with offices throughout the region, and looking into what's happening and what's have been um, uh, the change that has been um, uh, going in the region, giving a different perspective. This is certainly um, uh, have changed from many years back. Um, growing up under Saddam's regime and know firsthand the pain of being a young person trapped under a dictatorship. The pain cannot be contained forever. Experienced uh, the beta version of the Arab awakening in 1991, largely forgetting uprising in Iraq. 15 provinces out of the 18 has been liberated. Uh, we've been seeing tortures and uh, oppressive regime killing everywhere. And at the end, it's failed. There was no YouTube, no Twitter, no Facebook. And the only um, just beginning CNN and the satellite TV age was just uh, starting in, in the region. Then Saddam allows, uh, been allowed to regroup and, um, and kill its own uh, people. The first Arab awakening of the early digital era was crushed and forgotten. Looking now, in the past uh, um, six weeks, I was in the, in the region. I was in Iraq, Kuwait, uh, Egypt, and Tunisia. 
And certainly the atmosphere that I have witnessed and I have seen, it's totally different what I have witnessed from my previous visits to, to Egypt. Been working in Egypt for the past six years with uh, um, young activists uh, in the country and uh, working to help them uh, improve their leadership skills and their activism skills. And every time I managed to go there, I've been followed by the uh, secret police from the minute I enter Cairo to the minute I leave. Because I was simply working in a very sensitive issue, uh, which was human rights, civil rights issues, and empowering young people. And uh, this time around, it was totally different atmosphere. Seeing the young people in the streets, seeing people being able to express themselves and their feelings and their opinion in a very uh, uh, open way was really impressive. That was not the case um, when I was there in July um, 2010. And um, being able to uh, leading a debate on very critical issues was very interesting. Um, we led a debate um, on uh, Islamic State versus a civil state. And this debate, we had about 500 people attended it, and uh, they were talking about the possibility of, uh, of changing of the society inside uh, Egypt. Certainly, it was an eye-opener to see these young people speaking up their mind, and at, at the same time, the elderly people speaking with very, in a very conservative way about the previous uh, uh, regime and what's, what's happening, uh, the changes that's happening right now. Throughout the debate, uh, we uh, gave um, uh, a survey to uh, people to speak about which um, uh, which one they, they favor, the, the civic state or an Islamic state. The result was very interesting. 380 people voted for civil state. Um, about 120 uh, uh, voted for an Islamic state. Looking into uh, what's happening in, in, in the country and the change that's happened, many people um, talk about uh, or con being concerned, especially here in DC, about the effect of the um, uh, religious group or Islamist group in the, in the region. And this is, I have, I have been uh, seeing it there. In Egypt, there is a big, wide uh, spectrum of, of people who have been um, uh, secular, and they have a, a pretty much uh, a big secular society. At the same time, the Muslim Brotherhood and the Salafi movement in the country, uh, it's, been, uh, it's been active, not now, but also during um, uh, Hosni Mubarak's regime. Um, it was interesting to see that they are the only organized groups. And I, as I was leaving <coughs> Cairo, going to Tunisia, and the plane, um, I saw an, an imam coming from Al-Azhar going to uh, Tunisia with a young uh, guy with a beard. So the young guy uh, with a beard told the imam, um, are you going there for, to preach in Tunisia? He looked at him and he told him, no, I'm going for jihad. And um, I certainly was frightened to be in that plane. And, uh, uh, and um, one of my colleagues ended up sitting next to the um, young man who was, uh, who was in the plane uh, with us. And um, 
So he asked him, what are you going to do? He said, I am a product of a, um, an Egyptian-born Salafi uh, movement. And I've been in jail during uh, Hosni Mubarak's time for about uh, three years. And now I've been, I've been released. And uh, I am going to Tunisia to start the same movement uh, in Tunisia and to encourage young people there to be, uh, to be active in our, in our movement. So certainly, um, you know, with all the excitement that we see and all the um, the changes that happened by these people, by the young people, but also the danger that's still uh, um, surrounding the whole area, um, um, it's still very, very big and very um, uh, dangerous. Given the experience that I draw uh, following the um, implication from the Arab awakening, the wall of fears has been broken. But the challenge is how to make sure it's to stay broken. In 1991, I saw Iraqis break through the fear of Saddam, but he managed to regroup back and rebuild that wall. Now, a new generation of young Arabs has, be, has broken uh, the wall of fear that been built by their dictators. Even in the, um, in the police state of Syria and in Libya as well. But we need to act to help make sure those walls will not rebuild again. Imagine if we let the Berlin Wall being rebuilt again. Everything is up for grabs. Now is a great time for social entrepreneurship in the Middle East. For the first time in decades, citizens are free to, um, to express and to experiment uh, their life on a daily basis in a, in a free uh, motion. And to build new institutions as well. The Muslim Brotherhood, for example, is one of the few entrepreneurial groups that managed to grow under dictatorships and under the previous regime. But now, all kinds of um, competitors and new models can emerge. We should uh, be encouraging ex um, um, experiment, experimentation and um, uh, change in the, in the region. That's why we, uh, in Tunisia, for example, um, uh, my organization, the American Islamic Congress, um, will be running a micro-grant project for young social entrepreneurs to launch new uh, civic uh, projects and civic movement among these young people. As civil society is new there, you see many of these young people, they have the energy, they have the, um, uh, uh, the courage to start a new uh, project, a new uh, civil society uh, uh, programs, but the fear is still there. At the same time, um, there is a lack of uh, exp uh, expertise there. Conventional wisdom get to the Middle East strong. In DC policy circle, in the media, in academia, and beyond. There has been an um, obsession with the Arab-Israeli uh, conflict, while the conflict between Arab citizens and their dictators was largely ignored. Discussions of how to handle dictators was driven by the assumption that they were uh, 
prominent and they, they should stay. And the millions of Arab trapped living under, under these dictators were written off um, in supposedly a uh, realistic uh, view of the region. These were terrible mistakes that we have made, and now we have to uh, change it. Policy expert, journalists, and professors need to take um, a step to a step back um, and take uh, responsibilities for these mistakes. And we need to make sure that they are not uh, repeated and we move forward. We need to um, reorient our perspective on the Middle East and look at the grassroots scene and how effective that in the society. At the same time, that the future uh, has been shaped by these young people. We were the first um, um, uh, organization, Muslim, organi Muslim American organization, and civil rights group that opened offices in Cairo four years ago. And we have been on the uh, front line working with the young activists <coughs> for the past six years. Thanks to part of the uh, visionary uh, people at Cato, uh, like Tom Palmer, who took a, uh, a huge responsibility to help with that at that time. I want to encourage everyone to join the front line at the grassroots level, including policy analysts and lawmakers and reporters. We should not repeat the mistakes of allowing dictators to uh, dictate our understanding of the Middle East. Thank you very much. In October 1789, President George Washington sent a letter to Governor Morris, who was in Paris to succeed Thomas Jefferson as ambassador. The revolution, which has been effected in France, is so wonderful in nature that the mind can hardly realize the fact, he wrote. If it ends, as our last accounts to the 1st of August predict, that nation will be the most powerful and happy in Europe. But Washington worried that it would not end so well. I fear, though it has gone triumphantly through the first paroxysm, it is not the last it has to encounter before matters are finally settled. To forbear running from one extreme to another is no easy matter. And should this be the case, rocks and shelves not visible at present may wreck the vessel. Washington's caution turned out to be justified. The French Revolution, far from installing a peaceful democracy, led to a reign of terror and wars that lasted for decades. So far, the Arab Spring has been welcomed for its democratic potential. But as Washington observed, a pendulum that swings far in one direction has a tendency to swing violently back in the other direction. In this regard, Egypt deserves special attention, since it will likely set the course for the entire region. On March 8th, a celebration of International Women's Day that was to be held in Tahrir Square, the site of the revolution, was broken up. I thought we were going to be celebrated as women of the revolution because we were present during the days of Tahrir, said one participant. 
Instead, an eyewitness reported they were running for their lives, and the army had to fire a shot in the air to break up the mob chasing them. It is bad enough that the feeling of solidarity that had characterized the demonstrations evaporated so quickly, raising questions about how authentic it was. Even more is this subsequent uh, role of the army. The day after the demonstration, the army, which had taken over security functions, cleared Tahrir Square, detaining almost 200 people. They didn't give us a chance to speak, said one. They used an electric prod whenever we tried to speak. When one of the women repeated the Tahrir Square mantra, the army and the people are one, she was told, no, the military is above the nation. A similar situation exists with regard to Egypt's Christian Coptic minority. During the demonstrations in Tahrir, Copts and Muslims have provided an inspiring example of interfaith cooperation. And it must be noted that some of that spirit has endured. For example, leading presidential candidates Amr Musa and Mohammed al-Baradeh attended Easter services along with senior military officials in a public display of support. Yet there are also disturbing signs the unity is framed. In the city of Kana, protests have erupted against the appointment of a Coptic governor. The issues now are worse than in the past, says Nagib Gabriel, a Coptic lawyer and head of the Egyptian Federation of Human Rights. In the past, there were problems, but there were long periods between them. But after the revolution, every day we are seeing new things. Gabriel reports receiving 70 calls a week from people who want to emigrate. They are insisting on leaving Egypt because the risks of staying here are too great. The tolerance that characterized the Tahrir Square demonstration was also absent during the recent constitutional referendum. When Mohammed al-Baradai tried to vote, he was attacked by a mob throwing stones and prevented from casting his ballot. We don't want an American agent, one of them explained. Baraday subsequently complained that, quote, holding referendum in absence of law and order is an irresponsible act, unquote. Significantly, Baraday has also questioned the role of the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, which now rules Egypt. Describing Egypt as being in a, quote, political and constitutional mess, unquote, he has expressed uncertainty whether the presidential elections will be held as scheduled. Perhaps the most disturbing aspect of the SCAF the acronym for Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, obviously, is its foreign policy. Purposely distinguishing itself from Mubarak, SCAF has sought to improve relations with Iran while downgrading the United States and Israel. That might ordinarily be considered normal. New governments frequently rebalance a previous government's foreign policy. But these are not normal times, and three aspects of the new policy need to be considered. First, if the revolution is so democratic, it is curious that it, wake its, uh, it would make its initial overtures to Iran, a regime that has suppressed its own democratic movement over the last two years. SCAF also appears to be supporting the Syrian regime, which is brutally crushing resistance to its rule. Egypt has introduced amendments to a proposed UN Human Rights Council resolution, according to which the council should not condemn the bloody governmental crackdown on peaceful protests in Syria. Radwan Ziada, a Syrian human rights activist, has claimed Egypt should not support Assad. Second, Iran's relations with its Arab neighbors are deteriorating. Last month, the Gulf Cooperation Council called on 
the international community, I'm quoting that, the international community and the Security Council to take the necessary measures to stop flagrant Iranian interference and provocation aimed at sowing discord and destruction, unquote, among its members. Shortly before, Kuwait had expelled three Iranian diplomats and recalled its ambassador from Tehran after a court had found a direct link between a spy ring and Iran's revolutionary guards. This last point is important because a couple of years ago, Egypt had itself arrested several people linked to Iran. At the beginning of the Egyptian revolution, they escaped from prison. Hailing the escape, Hezbollah's leader, Hassan Nasrallah, said, Hezbollah thanks the revolution, which helped Sami Chahab, one of the um, escapees, get out of prison in Egypt. Hamas prisoners also escaped and made their way back to Gaza. Interestingly, uh, the escape of these prisoners does not seem to be an issue uh, for SCAF. Finally, there is the issue of the peace treaty with Israel. Shortly after Mubarak was removed from power, General Mohsen al-Fangari, speaking for the new regime, announced that the Arab Republic of Egypt is committed to all regional and international obligations and treaties. Yet the Camp David Treaty has come into question. Presidential candidate and democracy activist Ayman Noor has said that in practice, the Camp David Accords have come to an end and he has called for a referendum. According to a recent survey by the Pew Global Attitudes Project, quote, a slim majority of Egyptians want to annul the peace treaty with Israel. Revolutions typically begin with high hopes and a burst of idealism, but they tend to go through several stages as competing factions vie for power. If we contrast the success of the American Revolution with others that veer toward extremism, two factors stand out. One is the character of the people who lead it. If they are not interested in personal power, if their focus is the creation of enduring institutions to limit abuses of power, the revolution can witness, in Abraham Lincoln's words, a new birth of freedom. But as Crane Brinton observed in his classic, The Anatomy of Revolution, quote, in the politics of revolutions, what counts is the ability to move swiftly, to make clear and final decisions, to push through to a goal without regard for injured human dispositions, unquote. In these circumstances, fanatics displace moderates, and achieving power becomes an end in itself, rather than a means for achieving democratic reforms. The second is the immediate international environment. If that is characterized by violence, if external powers vie for influence, the revolutions are more likely to run aground. In this regard, the confrontation between Saudi Arabia, by extension the GCC, and Iran is emerging as a major issue. Unfortunately, if there is one part of the world filled with rocks and shelves, it is the Middle East. In my prepared comments, I kind of came to the same conclusion um, Dr. Cook did, which is, but you're not sure by the time you speak that what you've just said will be out of date because of things moving so fast. But the image that came to my mind was a giant, the Arab world is a giant kaleidoscope that's been shaken up, and the pieces are all going around, and we're trying to figure out what the new picture is going to be, and we don't know. And that's what makes it so difficult right now to um, 
make any judgments about um, where the Middle East is going and whether it's going to be even a regime change. Um, <clears throat> I got thinking about um, when's the last time the Arab world has gone through this kind of ferment? And um, I guess I came to think about 1952 when Gamal Abdel Nasser took power and um, got rid of the monarchy, nationalized the lands and most private industry, um, really brought workers and peasants into the parliament. You really had a real revolution, uh, social, political, economic. Um, and shortly after that, you had the Ba'ath Party, uh, which had been around actually since um, the end of World War II. And Ba'ath um, means renaissance, resurrection, revival. And the Ba'ath Party came to power in Syria in 1963. And it came in power also in Iraq in 1963, but it didn't last. But in 1968, it took power again. And that's when Saddam Hussein came to power. Well, shortly afterwards, but his group. And, um, and that's it's kind of the Middle East that we've had uh, in Syria and in Iraq ever since, since then. And, so, and, and then you even have the um, United Arab Republic when Egypt and Syria merged between 58 and 61. I mean, that was big change. Um, now, there are some interesting parallels and non-parallel. I, I, I'm going to parallels to the Ba'ath Party because... <clears throat> the Ba'ath Party was secular. Um, it was aimed at a resurrection, a revival. Um, its slogans were liberty, Arab, well, liberty, unity, and socialism, but that meant Arab, Arab unity and Arab socialism. Um, and it was aimed at sort of throwing off Western influence and opposing Western meddling. And... Um, between 1952 and 1961, this was the Arab world was really in great ferment. The 67 war really began to change things. But there are parallels to what's happening today. It's basically secular, like the Ba'ath Party movement was. Um, it's aimed at resurrection, revival of the Arab, uh, Arab world. But there are, of course, important differences. The mantra now is democracy and end of uh, human rights abuses and um, uh, freedom. Um, to our hearts, this is really quite warming. Um, so what out of all this, I went through this exercise trying to figure out, you know, out of all that's happening, what's going to remain and what is unlikely to remain? And I just want to do a brief review of what I have seen happening in, around the Arab world in a, in a few countries, just to give you some idea of what I've been looking at. If you look at Egypt, you know, what, what do you, what is gonna, what's going to survive out of everything that's happened so far? Well, I think we're leading towards a, multi, a real multi-party system. You may even have extreme political fragmentation. You're leading towards free labor unions, a labor party, and a lot of labor unrest. You're leading towards a new relationship between parliament and the president. And 
a redefinition of their respective powers. Now, we don't know how this is going to turn out, and um, it'll probably take another year or two years to find out. But there, these, are, these are things that, are, that I think are the major uh, developments inside Egypt that are likely to persist, and we're going to be watching for the next three or four years. In Yemen, you're leaning towards a really a permanent multi-party system and perhaps even civilian government rather than a military one, although you can argue that um, maybe not. Bec um, you're going to have a stronger parliament and you're going to have a weaker president, but the role of the army is still undetermined, which, by the way, is also true in Egypt. Um, you can question whether a civilian government can survive when in a country like that that's in the you know, in the process of falling apart. Maybe they'll need a military government in order to bring it back together. Libya, you're leading towards a federation or even a confederation unless we get rid of Gaddafi very shortly. A democracy seems very much on our wish list. There's no indication yet that there will be a multi-party system or even whether there'll be another, or there will be a military regime replacing Gaddafi. And finally, in Kuwait and Morocco, you see the struggle of two countries, two monarchies, um, slowly making their way towards constitutional monarchies, but are resisting that trend. But that's what's happening slowly in those two countries. Um, now, what present-day changes are likely to become permanent fe features of the new Arab political order? Well, certainly the introdu introduction of the Vox Populi, the people's voice, seems to, I think it's going to be persistent and cause a lot of problems, not only for whatever gov governments are in power, but even new and old parties. People's power is going to be a challenge, not only to government, but to these parties that we want to see form, take off, and develop. Um, I don't know whether political parties can replace the street. Um, another thing that really strikes me now is that you're going to have a lot more players in the political system. You're going to have parties, labor unions, civil society groups, street protesters, Islamic groups, and business groups, all becoming part of the, uh, of the political process. This is new, and I think it's probably going to be quite permanent. You're going to have a cacophony of conflicting voices and pressures. The other major change is that you, you're going to have the legitimization of Islamic groups as full players in the political process, giving them more weight in society and in policymaking, um, particularly in Egypt is going to be a big change. You're going to have greater preoccupation with economies and economic policies as unemployment and social unrest persist and a demand for the state, once again, to play a bigger role in the economy. Um, you're going to have, I'm afraid, greater and mostly negative uh, increased role for sectarianism in the politics of many countries. The Shia, the Sunni, the Christians, the Alawites, the Druze, and the Berbers are, are all becoming more self-aware of their position in these countries more defensive and offensive and seeking to figure out ways to protect their interests. Societies and political systems are becoming more fragmented along sectarian lines. And I think this is going to continue on into the future. 
and sectarianism is going to continue to be a threat to the national unity of countries and to successful democracies. And finally, tribalism is also reviving, although I don't think that's going to be a long-term uh, staying feature of the Arab world because urbanization is proceeding so rapidly. And the one finally, final reminder in the midst of all this change, having just come back from Saudi Arabia and Bahrain, is that we cannot forget that the old Arab order is still very much alive and fighting to survive as we see in Libya and in Syria and in Saudi Arabia and the, 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 all the monarchies of the Gulf. I'm finished. <laughs> um, so I would say that this contest between what's changing and what's steadfast and not changing is going to be fascinating to watch. We don't know what the outcome is, but the part that's steadfast and changing is, is, has a lot of weight to it, and it's much more cohesive than the part that's changing. And the Saudis and their friends have hundreds of billions of dollars to try to prevent this, these new forces, these new regimes that are trying to take, democratic regimes that are trying to come to the fore, to prevent it, to stop it, to, mod uh, to um, counter it. Um, so, stay tuned. <laughs> Thank you so much to all the speakers. Now I'll just open it up to questions uh, from the audience. Uh, we'll begin with this gentleman in the front. Uh, wait for the uh, microphone to come to you. Uh, yeah, I'll direct this question. Uh, I'm Russell King, by the way, and I'll direct this uh, question to Ms. Sawaj. Um, concerning the Bin Laden body, uh, there's a, uh, some questions concerning the sensitivity to Mohammedans for the U.S. government to this Bin Laden body. One thing, they had a quick burial at sea, and that destroys important forensic evidence, so it's not in the United States' interest to do that. And I, I, I thought I heard it was because of the Mohammedan funeral rites, uh, sensitivity to that, and also the fact that there's not been public disclosure of the photographs of his body, which had a partly mutilated head. But I also understand under, under Sharia law, places like the Taliban in, in, in Afghanistan, they had public beheadings at the soccer stadium. So it, it shouldn't really cause any problems among the Mohammedan population. So I'm, I'm wondering, can you tell me what's the, the status of Sharia-inspired mutilations and amputations across the region and uh, is there anything these countries are doing to resist outside powers like the Russian Federation or People's Republic of China from using agitation and propaganda agents to uh, foment discontent between the West and, and Mohammedan countries? Well, um, according to the um, um, Sharia is not one, only one thing that, um, that's clear. So each group, they have their own interpretation and their own um, uh, rules and regulations. Uh, the Sunnis are different from the Shia, the um, more conservative, and the Salafis and the Wahhabis, and the um, so many different schools are in there. And each each school they have their own um, uh, interpretation about that. Um, uh, there is a mainstream uh, understanding, and there is also a specific understanding of each group and what they want to. 
practice. Um, under the uh, Taliban uh, interpretation, it's very uh, severe, but um, uh, the beheading and uh, uh, cutting different parts of the, of the body for the people who do not believe in what they believe in, uh, it's allowed under their um, interpretation and understanding. And uh, um, uh, they show that proudly. And not, I'm not saying only about the non-Muslims, but also the Muslims who, not believe, who do not believe in what they believe in. But uh, for the uh, um, other uh, interpretations or regular um, uh, Muslims from both Sunni or Shia schools, uh, uh, the first thing that they do to the, uh, to the person when he or she died, it's uh, the burial as soon as possible and um, the wash of the body and, and, the, and bury it. Now, um, th throwing the body in the sea, this is, um, this is a practice that used to, uh, um, used to happen in the old days when um, uh, many of these sailors going around, uh, around the world and they threw the body. If someone died, um, they threw it in the, uh, in the ocean and they put a weight on it so it will sink down. Um, uh, I think uh, the um, anger or the rage that's happening now, it's, uh, it's not really, I don't see it as a, as a religious uh, rage. It's more of an apolitical statement. And uh, many of these uh, governments, many of these groups and people want to make this kind of uh, uh, these kind of statements just to uh, to uh, tell the uh, the Western world um, that we are we are angry about it. Uh, do they care um, that much about the religious practices? I doubt it, personally. But um, you know what's happening in uh, in the regions now that they consider it a war, especially the people who are. Um, uh, very much aligned with uh, bin Laden and his, uh, his groups and what they have been doing. Anyone else like to come? Okay. Yes, uh, the gentleman in the back with the hat right there. Yeah. Thank you very much. My name is Yaya Fanusi. I'm the lead for the United State of Africa 2017 Task Force. I'm the lead for the Special Operations Division of that. I will restrict my comment to North Africa. We want to make it clear that there will be no reversal of multi-party democracy and free and fair election, which will ensure. Nobody should think there will be a reversal. But what we want to make very clear, Gaddafi is an integral part of the United States of Africa 2017 task force. And because of the attacks on him, we are going to make sure we transform that movement in North Africa now to a nationalist movement like the NASA and others and Nkrumah that were focused in making sure it's not just popular uprising, but the people now will want those countries to maintain their resources for their own people. So nationalism is going to emerge. And when it emerges, you guys can remember I said it. OK, thank you. I think there was a question in there, something about Libya. <laughs> okay. I, I believe that was just a comment. Actually, we talked about Libya a little bit in the in the green room. Did, did anyone want to sort of elaborate on what we discussed, or no? uh, just uh, the fact that uh, we could be uh, seeing the partition of a country? Um, uh, I think it was David who mentioned either a confederation uh, of some sort, but that it strikes me that um, for a 
large portion of the Libyan population, Muammar Gaddafi is an illegitimate leader, and they would like to have something very different, and that only by the force of arms uh, of Gaddafi and his a African allies have uh, those hopes and dreams of uh, many Libyans been uh, thus far been um, delayed. Thank you. Uh, the gentleman uh, right in front, right there. Um, Curious as to whether about the gender aspect of the recent Arab uprising, and will this have any lasting results? Stanley, you brought that up in your in your presentation. Would you like to elaborate a little? Or well, as, as I mentioned in my remarks, I was struck by what happened on March eighth in Egypt. It seemed like having a demonstration was normal; that it was broken up the way it did. And especially that one comment I saw, the, you know, the army is above the nation. I, you know, for the woman to be told that, I thought was, was really disturbing. That's only one comment, but you know, it, it's a question mark. Mostly what I'm doing is raising questions about that. Um, but it is something to watch in the future. Uh, you, would you like to? Yeah, it is, it is actually very concerning uh, what's happening in uh, both in Egypt and in Tunisia. Uh, specifically on women's uh, on women's right, um, many of these women, just as uh, Stanley mentioned, been marginalized um, after. Um, when I was in Cairo, we did a panel on um, on women under the uh, new political changes, and um, people from different um, uh, spectrum of society came in, and um, they start whether the religious and and the uh, the secular. Uh, start talking about women, uh, women's role in the in the new uh, era. Um, unfortunately, it's been marginalized, and um, uh, and every time women wanted to participate, even within the political parties, they don't, they are really not pushing for women to be to be part of the uh, um, then you know the election or the process of uh, of. Uh, uh, being um, as power, you know, hold a place or a, or a seat in the, in the or in the parliament or in other places in the government, and it's very concerning. The same concern they share in um, in uh, Tunisia. Uh, many of the women who used to be in in power or used to be in the par part of the parliament, they were associated with the previous regimes. Uh, so people do not want them to be part of the new era. Uh, obviously, the new generation, they have no expertise, they have no background in politics. Maybe some of them, they were part of the uh, certain opposition uh, parties, but they have no uh, expertise in, in that field. So they are um, very weak in terms of uh, uh, pushing for uh, their rights. The women organization, the most powerful women organization, were only led by the previous uh, uh, regimes. So even within the new uh, formed uh, women um, civil society organizations, um, they are not really very, uh, uh, they didn't have that much of a power or that much of a skills to, to push for, uh, for, the new, for women to be, to be out there. Um, uh, we just established a program uh, in, uh, in Egypt uh, to help train uh, women and encourage them to be part of the decision-making and to run, actually, for, for the parliament. Given the short time that 
people have between now and actually Egypt, they are in better position than Tunisia because Tunisia's election is going to be in, in, in July, but in, in, uh, in Egypt is going to be in September, so that giving them few months. But at the same time, they need a lot of money, they need uh, support, they need power. And if the political parties within these countries are not going to support women, then I'm afraid that um, their role is going to be really minimized um, to the lower bottom. So it's a concern. Uh, the gentleman in the front right here. Ken Dillon, Ciencia Press. What if the current atrocities in Syria continue and even get worse? What if they start leading to a real bloodbath where thousands or even tens of thousands of people are killed by the government? At what point would uh, there be a prospect of international intervention and what form might that take and with what consequences, do you think? I'll start. I think that the there is first a, a precedent for the Syrians to kill on that scale. Uh, I think that if we're talking about precedents, the Obama administration has tried very hard to make the argument that Libya does not represent a precedent for other parts of the region. And I think for that reason, they're unlikely to take part in any kind of effort, international effort, although I don't think that there will be an international effort to intervene in Syria, even if you see violence on that scale. There is no stomach for it in Europe, which has a view of the Assad regime and the importance of Syria, which, as I pointed out in my uh, prepared remarks, uh, doesn't necessarily conform to the reality. Uh, you have allies of uh, Bashar al-Assad, like the Turks, who have already said that there should be no internationalization of uh, the unrest in Syria. And then you also have a virtual coalition of countries, a strange virtual coalition. I actually have an article coming out on this uh, relatively soon, uh, of supporters of the Assad regime, including Israel, Saudi Arabia, and Iran. So with a uh, United States that's engaged militarily in Iraq, Afghanistan for the moment, uh, Libya, NATO involved in Libya, and we see the limitations of uh, NATO effectiveness without the United States in Libya, I don't think that there is a tremendous amount of stomach uh, among leaders of all these countries and, and to uh, take on uh, Syria. It will be, should we get to that point, be interesting to see how they differentiate between Libya and Iran. It's relatively easier to do this kind of thing in Libya because the central interests of the United States aren't directly engaged, whereas there is a sense because of peace process, because of stability of Lebanon, stability of Iraq, and so on and so forth, that uh, this is uh, a much different task in, in, in Syria. Now, I, I just say that what's happening in Libya and our inability to, <clears throat> to make this a short intervention makes the likelihood of the UN or anybody getting involved in Syria in some similar faction, fashion highly unlikely. I think the international community really has its hands full with Libya. Um, the likelihood they'll do this, anything comparable or anything like that uh, after Libya to me is re really very unlikely. Okay, the gentleman in the uh, second uh, portion of the auditorium. 
my name is Kami, but I write for the Pakistani Spectator, and my question is about Arab-Israeli uh, issue and how this Arab uh, Spring would affect it, uh, given that most Israeli think that Obama is uh, anti-Semitic, and now if we have King Abdullah willing to make a call to Syrian uh, dictator, he might make a call to uh, Iran uh, in, if, the, if he sees any potential danger to Iranian regime, because I think these kings just want to have stability at any cost, because that is the, uh, the bottom line of their survival. So given, uh, I, if I were Israeli, I would have nightmare uh, what's going on here. Do you think Obama would have some advantage uh, in resolving this Arab-Palestinian cause issue, because now he has more card to play against Israel, or you think Israel would get more paranoid and less willing to compromise anything about this Israeli-Palestinian issue? Thanks. So uh, does the Arab Spring push in the direction of more peace or less uh, peace in the peace process? Mm -hmm. No one wants to touch uh, that less. one. <laughs> it's, hard to, it's hard to tell I have a just very quick intervention uh, on this. Um, you would think that perhaps uh, with everything that has happened, uh, uh, Obama's certain, the prestige that he's gained from the demise of Osama bin Laden, et cetera, et cetera, would give him uh, a certain advantage in kind of pushing the parties together. But first, what we've had is a, an agreement between Hamas and Fatah, and the Israelis are uh, clear that they are not going to deal with Hamas. And then to their advantage, uh, should the president ask uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu when, president, when Prime Minister Netanyahu visits the White House in a, in a few weeks uh, that uh, the Israelis should re-engage uh, with this new reconciled Palestinian government, all Netanyahu needs to do is hold up the statement of Ismail Haniyeh and others condemning uh, the U.S. raid on Osama bin Laden's hideout. Um, there's, uh, it strikes me that this is uh, probably the least propitious moment for a, uh, a big push on, uh, on Arab-Israeli conflict. Anyone else like to comment? I kind of, I think I'll argue the other way just for the sake of having a debate. <laughs> um, I think something's got to be done about the Palestinian issue and that um, you now have the two at least symbolically together, Hamas and Fatah, which has been one of the ex excuses for which the Israelis wouldn't negotiate because they were divided and et cetera, et cetera. I think it's entirely impossible to, entirely possible to negotiate with the PLO or, or the PLO can set up some group that can negotiate um, on behalf of the PLO. Um, and avoid us dealing with Hamas directly. I mean, this is what diplomacy is all about. You create ways. I remember the proximity talks over Afghanistan because A wouldn't talk to B, so they had some parallel talks going on with different groups, and uh, we arranged for the Soviets to get out of Afghanistan. And, um, and otherwise, if we don't do anything, the Palestinians are going to go to the UN and declare uh, and become an independent country in fragments and pieces though it may be, and it's going to become more difficult for um, Israel to, to deal with them. Israel is going to become more isolated, and 
my reading is that the Abbas and the PLO um, have decided they have nothing to lose. They have they have they do not believe that Netanyahu Netanyahu at this point is interested in talks, and they're going to go ahead and do it at the UN, and it's going to strengthen the Palestinians unless the Americans do something. So I think the pressure is growing on Obama, despite all the risks that we're all well aware of, of trying to bring about talks. Uh, I think the pressure is growing on Obama uh, also to reestablish American leadership or some role in the Middle East in the middle of all these revolutions taking place, that the pressure is growing on Obama to come out with his own peace plan and get this process going, if for no other reason than to abort the Palestinian declared plan to go to the UN and become recognized as an independent country. But uh, let me ask you that. What specifically would you recommend that he do that we haven't come done out, already? Come out with our own plan. Everybody knows what the outline of a plan is. Um, what, we, what we haven't heard is for the Americans to come out and, and say, this is what we think. It's negotiating around the borders of the 67 borders and swapping of land and both sharing, you know, everybody knows what the, the general outlines are. But you've got to, Obama's going to have to show leadership, make it our plan, and drag both sides to Camp David or whatever, it's, wherever it's going to take place, and try and get an agreement. What happens when everybody rejects that plan? Then where do you go? Uh, you know, David, I agree with virtually everything that you've said, except for the fact that it is, it is couched in a way in which there's no politics around this conflict. That uh, Netanyahu, who, has, who was prime minister once before and learned the lesson of coalition management, uh, is not going to uh, even be perceived to be moving in the step of uh, negotiating with Hamas. And that even if we believe that there can be some sort of uh, proximity talks in which we're not dealing with Hamas. The idea that Hamas would not have some sort of influence, given its prestige, uh, on the Palestinian negotiating position, uh, strikes me that even though, yes, something needs to be done about the Palestinian issue, it would be great if the United States can do something about it, but the politics of it don't align. And even if, at this late date in May, we were to launch some sort of process. It does not preclude at all the Palestinians from going to the United Nations anyway, which is what they are likely, uh, likely to do. You already get the sense that Abbas and other Palestinian decision makers believe that they have the international community, uh, the support of the international community, and that, as you point out, they have nothing whatsoever to lose by going uh, to the UN. Um, the Israelis understand this, but also understand their own politics. And there's no way that they, there's one person in Israel who sees the Arab revolutions as an opportunity. It's Shimon Peres. That's it. There's a recognition we need to head off this train wreck, but nobody has a good idea thus far how to do it, other than an American plan that everybody's likely to reject. You know, in the Middle East, I've covered the politics of negotiations for 30 years, the stars are never aligned. You have to force the stars to align. And we got close to agreement a number of times, and uh, we didn't quite make it. Even Omer 
almost got there, dealing with Abbas. So it's not like we're miles away. Um, we have to force the stars to align. Uh, the young lady in the back with the sunglasses. Hi, Zainab. I'm glad to see you back and see you well. Um, I was astonished to hear you say, um, and maybe I misheard you, that uh, it's been the American policy to drag the Arab-Israeli, uh, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict into everything from what I have read over the years. It's been the Arab nations themselves that have consistently if uh, red herringly dragged the Palestinian-Israeli conflict into absolutely every discussion about the Middle East. So I just wondered what you meant by that. Well, it comes from, uh, from both, uh, both sides. A lot of dictators uh, in the region, them, their main focus was uh, the Arab-Israeli uh, conflict to uh, shift the attention of their own people from the... Um, uh, from the atrocities that they are committing against their own people. So it's always, you know, Israel is to blame and the other side. And um, and they are not really uh, looking into uh, the things that's happening. And given the relationship that we have, uh, our governments here have with, with uh, many of, the, of these regimes in the region, uh, make them even more uh, believe in that, um, in that idea of uh, uh, the conspiracy theory and... Um, you know, uh, in the, you know, the Arab-Israeli conflict, uh, but made them less focused on the atrocity of their own people. And what I meant by um, how um, our government, the, given the relationship that we had, for example, with Hosni Mubarak and his regime, and the current relationship that we have with the Saudis, um, also uh, indicate what, uh, you know, that there is no uh, differentiation between uh, or, you know, the main focus would be still the Arab-Israeli conflict, but not really the human rights, civil rights violations that's happening in these, in these countries. Uh, this uh, gentleman right here in the glasses. Hi, Peter Fetner. Um, it seems like the American power in the Middle East is uh, to some extent compromised because it's perceived that we don't have a consistent human rights policy. We, you know, didn't really like human human rights violations when Mubarak did it. We really hate it when Iran does it. We don't mind if it happens in Bahrain at all. It's fine. It's okay if it's happening in Israel. So people will look at the United States and say, well, when they talk about human rights, aren't they really just trying to leverage soft power for some kind of foreign policy purpose? Isn't it really reducible to interest in that? takes away a certain amount of soft power from us, right? So since we can't rely on the military to have effects to leverage American power in the Middle East, we'll have to rely on our legitimacy. Now, wouldn't, wouldn't America get a lot of power if Obama cracked down on human rights violations by our allies among the Saudis and in Bahrain and in, uh, and in Palestine? If he said, the United States is not going to tolerate this, we're not going to support it, we're going to reduce aid to you. We're going to reduce military protection, uh, trade, everything. We're going after any human rights violations uh, at all. And if we came out and, and, and said that in a really strong way, wouldn't we gain a tremendous amount of power overnight? I mean, wouldn't Iran topple within a year if we actually had a consistent 
genuine human rights policy? Isn't that really what's what's in our interests? On this issue, uh, outside there's an article I wrote years ago, and it's a follow-up to a previous article called Idealpolitique, in which I, I said, uh, again, quoting George Washington, I really like Washington from the Farewell Address, um, the United States should be a model, the city on the hill. Um, I, as Malou mentioned in the introduction, my background is more Soviet stuff. And I was amazed when the Cold War was ending to see the transformation of the Soviet Union in which they admitted openly, and I spoke about this at Cato like 20 you know, years ago, they were admitting we were wrong on the issues of human rights. No country can say that you know, its internal affairs uh, is not the subject of uh, international norms. Uh, this, I thought, was remarkable. Back then, they looked up to us. It was extraordinary. We had, Cato had a conference in Moscow in 1990. Amazing. Yeah, I see not, it was, you know, to see this transformation, on your point. A year and a half ago, I was at a conference at Georgetown in Azerbaijan. Let's take this out of the current yeah, conference in Azerbaijan. The Under Secretary of State, William Burns, you know, gives the introductory address. The United States would like a strategic partnership with Azerbaijan. But I have to tell you, in a spirit of friendship, Azerbaijan has problems with human rights. Okay. The deputy foreign minister of Azerbaijan replies, Azerbaijan would like a strategic partnership with the United States. But I have to tell you, in a spirit of friendship, the United States has problems of human rights. Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo. It, it just, you know, and I take your point, but it's, 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 it's going to take a while to repair. In other words, want the strategic partnership, we'll give you the strategic partnership. Don't lecture us anymore. It's a big change from what I saw 20 years ago. Anyone else? Okay. Uh, next question. Uh, gentleman in the front. Hussein Ebni Yusuf, International Petroleum Enterprises. We just completed a major study of the, uh, uh, looking at the changes in the Arab world and the impact it would have on the oil and gas. So uh, I've done uh, quite a bit of research in, in this area. Um, I uh, totally agree with Mr. Otway on, uh, um, you know, what, what he talked about, about the nationalism, Arab nationalism, and so on. But I found out that Arabs actually have two words for nationalism. They have the Qawmiya and Wataniya, Arab nationalism and then the country nationalism. What was rejected was the Arab nationalism under Nasser and then uh, later on uh, also the, the Ba'asis movement, which was really an extension of that, as, as you kind of pointed to. Uh, but the situation, uh, the way I look at it, is that there is absolutely no history of independence in the Arab world. Um, the, uh, the oldest culture there is Egypt, uh, North Africa, and uh, the independence, probably the history of independence goes back to the pharaohs. Nothing since, um, unfortunately. Um, so, um, on the secularism uh, portion that you talked about, 
yes, democracy, freedom, human rights, they're all, you know, nice. But there's nothing that any religion, uh, any Abrahamic religions at least, uh, would have against any of those issues. So they don't see the, uh, the, the people, the, the believers, uh, they, they don't see anything wrong with, with any of the teachings of, of the religion. So I don't think that they would go against it. And uh, since uh, Mr. Kober talked about, went back all the way to George Washington, allow me to talk uh, about the, the, the Iranian uh, constitutional revolution at the turn of the last century. And it was uh, very successful. So there are actually models in the Islamic world that might be useful. Uh, Turkey is another one, and there are a number of others. Uh, unfortunately, we don't see any in the Arab world. So I was wondering if, if you, any of you can, can talk about that and, and see uh, where you see hope uh, for uh, looking at a model that they can um, emulate and, and follow. Thank you. Well, St St Steve's the expert on Egypt, but they had a parliamentary system from what, their 20s to 23. the 53? 1923 to 1953. So, I mean. It, this is not a region that is completely devoid of experience with uh, democratic practices, parliamentary systems. In fact, if you, you know, grew up in a box and you woke up and you, and, and you left the box and you looked at the Egyptian constitution, there are parts of it that are actually quite liberal. So I, I think that there should be less of a search for models uh, outside the Arab world than for Arabs themselves who are now empowered uh, to uh, write uh, constitutions and develop institutions that are, uh, that are democratic. This is not an alien concept uh, to this part of the world. And I get very nervous when people talk about, for example, the Turkish model. Turkey, another favorite country of mine where I've spent time living and writing about. Uh, there are two variants of the Turkish model. One is that um, the Turkish Armed Forces reserves the right to uh, preserve the republican and secular order, and as a result, uh, it engages in uh, extra constitutional activities to maintain that order. Uh, the other one is the a more recent iteration of the Turkish model, which is the uh, party of an Islamist roots, uh, the Justice and Development Party, leading uh, the country towards a more democratic and, and liberal future. Um, certainly, the Justice and Development Party uh, did much in 2003 and 2004 uh, to change uh, Turkish political institutions in accordance with uh, the demands of the European Union. Uh, but we are now in uh, that middle range of Turkey's transition to something, and it's unclear whether Turkey is going to end up uh, a liberal democracy or an illiberal democracy. Once more, there are no groups, there's no body out there like the European Union to offer the kind of incentives to a place like Egypt or Tunisia to undertake those reforms. So I think that uh, the Arab world has to look within itself, its own traditions, and I think that we are engaging in a bit of, uh, in a, in a, bit of uh, a kind of patronizing, underlying patronizing assumptions that the Arabs don't have the ability to uh, develop these institutions on their own. They do actually have a rich, a richer political history than people give them credit for. Okay. Then uh, no one else has anything else. I'll just have to take one final question on the aisle right here. 
Samar Chatterjee from Safe Foundation. I address it to Stephen Cook. I, I found it very interesting that you wrote an article in Foreign Policy that says America shouldn't hijack Egypt's revolution. I fully agree with you. I would rather say America shouldn't hijack any revolution at all, even though it's in America's DNA. I'm not the headline genes. writer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, uh, let me just finish it, then you can answer it. It's in America's genes and, um, and DNA to hijack anything that it finds, wherever it can find. So That's given, why I wrote the article. <laughs> right. Uh, so, um, uh, interestingly, uh, talking about hijacking, and since Mr. Obama has now proven after murdering uh, Osama bin Laden that he is a super terrorist, and very good, very adept in murdering. Maybe it's time for him to become Jimmy Carter and follow what Mr. Ottawa is talking about to bring Egypt, uh, Palestinians and Israel. And that means he's got to do some terrorism against Israel. This time it won't be a Palestinian terrorism, it'll be <laughs> Obama terrorism. Well, I think we addressed that before in our conversation about uh, the, 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 the Arab-Israeli conflict. I think that Whereas, you know, I agree with virtually everything that David had said about what we should do. Uh, it is, I think, I didn't only took one class in physics. It's hard to move the stars. Uh, so I think that um, it is going to be a, extremely difficult uh, to put uh, a plan on the table that people are, are going to do, uh, that people are going to agree to. Uh, we can argue from uh, today until tomorrow whether the United States should apply more pressure and how on, uh, on the Israelis. But what is clear, what should be clear to all of us, and this is not an argument about American decline, but that it's easy in Washington to overestimate uh, our leverage and our ability to drive events in a region that's five, 6,000 miles away. I think that uh, the events of the course of the last decade should demonstrate uh, to any objective observer that uh, our ability to uh, that our, our sense of ourselves as uh, as being able to drive events and force uh, leaders to do things that we don't want that they don't want to do is limited. When it is in uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's interests to ignore American uh, pressure in order for the sake of his uh, political future, which is after all he is a politician. And his prime directive is to remain in office, and that is more difficult in Israel than it is in a lot of other places. Then he is going to do everything he can to move out from under American pressure in the same way that uh, the Palestinians have moved, tried to avoid American pressure, in the same way that Hosni Mubarak ignored George Bush's calls for uh, democratic change in, in Egypt. They do not believe that their interests as politicians are served that way. And that's why I think it's going to be hard for us to uh, engage in, the, in a process that is going to bring us uh, closer to an end of this conflict. I think we're heading off the end of a cliff, but that's just the, the facts of, of the situation. Unless anyone else on the dais has any, anything they'd like to add? Okay, well, thank you so much. It was an honor and a privilege to, to host this event, and thank you so much to the speakers for coming. Thank you to Cato's wonderful conference department and to Charles Zacabe, and please uh, join us upstairs for refreshments. Thank you. <laughs>